Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, June 12th, marks our 125th program. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm, of course, your host for today's program, Fiscal Year 2020 IPPS Proposed Rule. Uh, I'm joined today by a familiar co-host at the left of your screen, Alan Frady. Alan is uh, a CDI education specialist here for, uh, for us here at Actus. Uh, Alan principally teaches CDI boot camps and serves as a subject matter expert. By way of background, he's an accomplished consultant with a background in coding and documentation, and I'm very pleased to have him back on today's program. So welcome, Alan. Thank you, Brian. Okay. Next, I'd like to introduce our, our two special uh, industry guests today. So we have with us today Howard Rodenberg. Uh, Howard is a physician advisor for clinical documentation integrity at Baptist Health in Jacksonville. He's an emergency physician by training, has served as an associate professor at University of Florida, uh, emergency services medical director, and is health department director for Florida's Volusia County in the state of Kansas. Dr. Rodenberg has authored multiple publications, book chapters. You've probably read his great material on Actus blog. He's also been uh, two times prior, I believe now, on uh, the Actus podcast, and I'm thrilled to have him back, so welcome, Howard. Thanks very much. Fun to be here. All right. And making her debut on the Actus podcast today is Candace Blankenship. Uh, Candace is a CDI specialist at Mayo Clinic Florida in Jacksonville. Uh, Candace, in a short time, has made quite an impact with us here at Actus. She won our Actus Rookie of the Year Award in 2016. Um, has presented on the topic of APRDRGs at our last couple of conferences, uh, not this year, I don't believe, but 27 and 2018. Um, she's worked to develop some APRDRG tools for uh, Elsevier CDI education software. She's also contributed an author to one of our books, uh, Actus Books, Pediatric CDI, Building Blocks for Success. So I'm pleased to have her on the show as well. Welcome, Candace. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Okay. Um, and, you know, it doesn't say in the bio, but both Candace and Howard are members of a new Actus Regulatory Committee, which is a group formed to uh, review rules and regulations from groups like CMS or Coding Clinic, um, clinical updates, and uh, review those changes, provide summary to our members when needed, as well as to provide formal commentary to CMS. And that's really what we're here to talk about today is the uh, fiscal year 2020 IPPS proposed rule, which of course has a number of significant changes uh, for the CDI profession. So we're going to start as we always do with a poll question related uh, to today's topic. You can go ahead and pull that up. You should be seeing that on your screen. Uh, the question reads, Please describe your level of concern regarding the proposed changes in the 2020 IPPS rule. Would you describe that as very concerned? 
uh, your level of concern is somewhat concerned. Uh, maybe you're mildly or, or not very concerned. Don't know, still formulating, or you have not read the rule, in which case we'll, we'll hope to give you a good uh, sample of what's in there today. So again, uh, please describe your level of concern about the 2020 IPPS proposed rule. Uh, very concerned. Um, fire alarms going off. <laughs> Somewhat concerned. Uh, mildly or not concerned. Don't know or ha uh, still formulating. You've, maybe you've read it but haven't quite come up with um, your, your thoughts or have not read the rule. All right. Looks like about 80% of our audience has voted. So I'm gonna go ahead and close this out at this time. And as we always do, we will come back uh, to these results in just a few moments. Okay, so as I mentioned, our guests today are Howard Rodenberg, Candace Blankenship. Again, welcome to the program, guys. Um, you know, today's show is actually a bit of a special edition of the Actus podcast. We normally run the show every other week, but we decided to add this special edition show because there is um, a very momentous rule that's currently in the uh, proposal stage. Of course, the 2020 IPPS proposed rule. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping maybe we could start Howard and Candace and we'll get into some specifics about what it contains, but can you maybe just talk a little bit about uh, the extent of the changes this year? I know they're significant. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and pull up a couple articles maybe as you're speaking uh, about just a number of them. We can't possibly review them all in the next 20 minutes, but there are a number of changes. Um, and I know it just in general, there, there are some changes you guys uh, seem to agree with, but but many others that um, are concerned where you're, you're, you're very concerned that these downgrades essentially to CCs and MCCs that um, the CMS is proposing, you know, really could impact the, the reimbursement for these very expensive patients that hospitals treat. So I don't know if anyone would, would like to start. Maybe you, Candace. I know, Howard, you mentioned before the show that Candace had uh, certainly educated all of us a little bit on how CMS uh, classifies these CCs and MCCs and their, and their process for sort of making changes to the rules every year. So maybe I'll open it up to you, Candace, to get us started. All right. All right. So this is this is something that happens every year. So CMS publishes new IPPS parole rules every year. So it's good that as an industry, uh, we as CDIs and coders keep up with this. We have some opportunity to make changes either by proposing a change or by commenting on a proposed change and hoping to change CMS's mind. The last time they did this, this much of a change on MCCs and CCCs was in 2008. So they had deferred the change while we moved as a nation from ICD-9 to ICD-10. So this was the first time that they took a breath in ICD-10 and started to look at the data that we have sent in as a community, it's us. We sent that data and all us CDIs and coders were responsible for this. So these are all the coding profiles that we sent in last fiscal year. And so they said, it's time. It's time to reassess are these uh, the MCC and CC rankings and even the non-CCs. They did look at some of the non-CCs to move them up to CCs and MCCs. So they ran the data, they ran all the coding profiles and they, they looked at um, how the um, 
DRG acted when it didn't have a CC or MCC attached to it, how it acted when it had one CC attached to it, and the secondary diagnosis that they were looking at, um, let's say uh, chronic diastolic CHF. And then the third run was when they ran the principal diagnosis, uh, the secondary diagnosis of an MCC, and then diastolic CHF. And they looked to see if having that secondary diagnosis, that CC of diastolic CHF, changed the patient resource use, length of stay, patient outcome. And once they completed that data run specifically for the chronic diastolic CHF, uh, they found out that as a secondary CCC diagnosis, it makes absolutely no impact. So they said, well, we probably need to downgrade that. And that's what they proposed, one of the many proposals to change MCC and CC. So that's what they look at. They look at the data that you, me, everybody that's listening to the call, they look at the data we submitted. And they ran it as a, a metadata analysis based on whether or not it actually changed the length of stay, resource management, and patient outcome. And that's what they are basing these findings on. Right. Um, yeah, I just wonder, this is Alan, I just wonder how many people are going to continue to think that looking at analytics to make decisions on the actual severity of a patient remains to be a good idea after this year. Um, it, with so many CC, MCC changes, let's talk about a few specific examples. So I know, just as an example of one that I know I think Candace was interested in, was the BMI code in the Z68 category talking about body mass index. And that's a change. That's another change from CC to non-CC. It also happens if your BMI is low. Um, can you talk about this particular proposed change and, and maybe your concern with the treatment of patients? Because some of these things are potentially understandable and some of them I think are still potentially questionable. Yes, and, and you're so right. And you do bring up a good point. So remember last year when they changed the ECMO ranking um, and everybody was crazy. Like, how could they possibly do that? And when we sat down to look at it um, as an industry, we realized that they did not have the data that they needed because, of, you know, the coding profiles that they were receiving were very few. That an ECMO patient is rarely a 65 or older patient. It tends to be a pediatric or a younger adult population. So we actually used that in the argument that we submitted to CMS on, on the comment during the comment period. And they actually did overturn ECMO based on the fact that they did not have enough data to do it. And in this case, Alan, when you look at BMI, I think you, you, know, you and I have worked at the bedside and we know the links that you have to go to as a nurse in order to care for somebody with a BMI between 40 and 50. And when you look at the average height and weight of uh, average height of a female and average height of a male, that's a patient with a weight of 237 to 330. So you have to find your lifting equipment or you have to find other people to help you. We noted that there's an increased um, injury rate on bedside nurses due to lifting and pulling of these patients. You need equipment, um, special equipment in order to carry out their plan of care. Their plan of care is sometimes delayed due to their weight. And so when we started talking about that on the regulatory committee, we realized that much of this is not coded and put in a profile and sent to CMS. And so we feel like they're basing this decision on absence that on data that doesn't 
accurately reflect the amount of resource a hospital puts into care for these patients. So the template that's up on the website here on ACTUS um, about the BMI uh, that we're hoping that the members and the listeners today are going to send in is based on you can't make this decision on the data you have because I can't code the amount of resource that's used for this patient. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the flaws in the data analysis that we noted specifically for this BMI. Candace, I'm looking at that now. So um, for our listeners, our regulatory committee put together some templates to help you, our listeners, uh, comment to CMS. So as I always do, I will share these links um, in the, the show notes after the program. We upload all these programs to uh, actus.org, and I will make sure we have a link to these uh, this template page. But Candace specifically developed um, uh, a morbid obesity letter here. You can just hover over and, and, and download um, that that particular template. These aren't meant to be used verbatim. Uh, you, you will see within them, you know, we have, you know, a certain name of institution here. So make sure you go ahead and change that stuff. Uh, but it certainly provides a nice introduction, summary of issue, uh, and um, some uh, citations that from the clinical literature there. And then, you know, as well as a way to respectfully conclude the letter. So I th- hopefully these will serve as helpful resources for you uh, if you do choose to comment to CMS. It was a great work there, Candice. Thank you. Um, I had a lot of help. I mean, everybody on yeah. the committee, we've, we've been talking about this for a while, so I had a lot of help, and Howard especially is crazy amazing with writing these things. Yeah. You know, Howard, maybe we'll switch to you. Can uh, Candace just outlined sort of the BMI concerns she had, and, and I know you had some about uh, ESRD, which is includes a downgrade from an MCC to a CC. Um, you know, some CKD stages, uh, maybe a little less concern with that, but in particular ESRD. You know, what what, what is it that concerns you with these change, and 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 why should they concern our listeners, and maybe from your your clinical perspective. I'm still trying to figure out crazy amazing because usually when I hear the word crazy, it has to do with my ex-wife. So I'm, I'm still working through that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I want to emphasize something that Candace mentioned, which is when they do these analysis, it really is just analytic data. I mean, they have some clinical advisors or some questions about what that means and what it does. But Candace is absolutely right. So when you look at things like length of stay and outcomes, it doesn't necessarily reflect what's actually done in the hospital. You know, Candace used the term non-codable resources, which I think is, is right. You know, as an ER doc, I always think about it in terms of patients with intoxication. So you've got, um, you've got patients who come in and they're intoxicated, and so you let them sleep it off, or some of them are so intoxicated they need intubation for airway protection. Well, clearly one has a higher resource intensity, but they both leave the same day. So Candace is absolutely right in pointing out that from an economic analysis, they look exactly the same, even though the resources used are totally different. And as a result, if you're going to argue these things, I think you have to argue them clinically because that's not what's reflected. And that's what Candace has done very nicely with the uh, morbid obesity issue and with the morbid obesity template. Uh, For the end-stage renal disease, this is one of those ones that's sort of a complex issue that there's no easy way to go, Uh, and there's kind of a mixed bag, and I will give you my opinion, 
It is not necessarily the opinion of anyone else, but this is one of those things where I can see a positive and a negative. So for example, with the change to take uh, chronic kidney disease stage four and stage five, and take that down to a, to a non-CC, you know, clinically, that's probably not something you could argue very much because, in fact, you know, patients with stage 2 and stage 3 renal disease, we adjust their doses of antibiotics and we adjust those, their doses of medications, the same as we would for a patient with stage 4 or 5. And so to say that 4 and 5 is somehow worse than 1, 2, and 3 when we do the same exact thing is a little hard to, hard to make that argument. So this is one of those ones where you might say, you know what, I understand why CMS is doing this and make some sense, and let's not, let's not uh, uh, raise an alarm where we don't have to. That being said, I think clinically, end-stage renal disease is a totally different ballgame, because even though patients may not have worse outcomes, and they may have similar length of stay, the resource intensity is, in, is, is infinitely higher, because these are the patients who are getting dialyzed every day or every other day. They're getting renal consults or getting more measurements of renal function. And so I do have a concern with the end-stage renal disease being downgraded from an MCC. But again, I think the important thing is no matter which of these multiple changes you want to address, and then the thing you have up on the Actus uh, radio website right now lists a lot of different concerns, that argument really has to be made clinically. Right. I like that, Howard. I, I think that is where our members can shine. You know, it, it, it's going to be hard to argue with CMS using the same data it's, it's drawing from, but certainly the clinical argument is, a, is one to be made. Um, I would like to, um, as the coder on the call, I would like to counter Howard's statement by talking about the actual coding guidelines being contributing to this because I I feel like a lot of the coding rules excludes notes and indexing is just broken. And so if if CMS is making their decisions based on claims data and the actual system of ICD-10 is broken, then, you know, the old saying, garbage in, garbage out. So I think there's a lot of clinical concerns, but I also think that a lot of diagnoses are simply being reported with the wrong ICD-10 code. Um, and then CMS is running with it on their charge analysis. We've got this one with... Uh, drug-induced pancytopenia that has an excludes one for neutropenic fever <laughs> and drug-induced pancytopenia is being turned into neutropenic fever because of a coding glitch and we're seeing an increase in neutropenic fever to a CC. Well, that actually has the potential to cost CMS money. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of cuts both ways. Um, with so many proposed changes, let's talk about one of everybody's favorites. Uh, I don't think we can neglect uh, STEMIs and chronic heart failure and those uh, heart failure type of situations. So what else should our listeners be concerned with? Candace, I know you did some work with the grouper and concerned about CMS in terms of failing to account for certain um, diagnoses in the cardiac chapter. And it also matters whether or not they get an intervention because that can change it to a surgical DRG in some cases. Mm -hmm. So Howard and I were emailing yesterday, and I feel like I've really worked my way through Kubler-Ross's stages of grief on this. So I've <laughs> arrived kind of at my acceptance phase by now. So I looked at the NSTEMI, and, and I are the STEMI, and I looked at it, and I ran it through the encoders with different scenarios and things. 
And I actually came to the conclusion that probably those recommendations are accurate because somebody who comes in with a STEMI is going to go to the cath lab because we know that we're graded on that door to the balloon time, right? So resource use, you get paid for the cath and intervention. Um, it bumps you up significantly as a secondary diagnosis. Um, and your payment is, is really good in, in the uh, MSDRG system when you have a STEMI as a secondary and, and they all go to cath lab. They All STEMIs go to cath lab. It's, you got to for your quality outcome. So, and the NSTEMIs that are being downgraded are the subsequent NSTEMIs that are attached to the original STEMI. And so you're already getting the payment for the intervention for the STEMI. So I could see that they protected, they, and I think this is their logic because they protected specifically the NSTEMI and the NSTEMI type two. They are not changing because they don't go to the cath lab or get a procedure or an intervention during the hospital stay. They may be discharged and come back for that. So I actually think their logic can't be argued with on that. On the CHF, the chronic diastolic and systolic, um, I think that might be a data problem. Um, I think what we don't know is how often is acute on chronic CHF not present on admission coded as a secondary diagnosis, which would indicate how, how delicate these patients are when they come in. I would like to propose, and this is one of the things we're looking at, and I actually got an email from Stacy Reck yesterday, who's another CDI that's looking at proposing something similar to CMS, is that this um, secondary chronic diastolic and systolic uh, CHF as a secondary be split and have it act as a non-CC for principal diagnoses that don't require any fluid resuscitation or volume use. So that would and um, require it to be a CC when your principal diagnosis is something like sepsis or pneumonia or a surgical procedure or you had an intervention that required IV contrast dye, which are all high-risk procedures or a high-risk interventions for somebody with a chronic CHF disease. And so your, your, your treatment tends to be delayed or titrated slower over time. So I, I think if we had access to the granular data, I think what we would see is that the reason why acute CHF is not acting as a CC is because it's often turned into acute on chronic, not present on admission, because everybody wants to manage and get this person out in a short period of time. I'd like to do another counter to your clinical analysis, which is that ST elevated MIs get reported freely for 28 days following uh, yes. the initial, and they're being reported whenever they are not addressed and don't receive any hospital resources. Again, that's a coding issue, and CMS has just declared that an ST elevated MI must not be a clinical problem uh, worthy of any kind of severity, but probably we shouldn't have been reporting it on situations where it didn't meet the UHCDS for the last four years. I would, but I just sent a query to get a 28-day STEMI put in a record. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut until I get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, um, we've talked about a couple of the issues and appreciate you going through that, Candace and Howard and, and, and Alan adding some great color there. I uh, did want to talk maybe for a few minutes here to, to, to kind of wrap this up about some of the resources that we've provided and sort of how the mechanics for commenting work. 
because I know most of our listeners, I'm going to guess, probably have not sent a comment to CMS. I know that some have in the past. There may be some misconceptions that this is an onerous process. Maybe there's some misconceptions. They may not have anything significant to add, but I, I feel like everyone does. I know that CMS does read these comments. They're, they're actually um, duplicated on their website when, when, when you leave them. Um, so probably, probably I don't want to leave anything too profane in some of these comments. Just be, be respectful, but it's important to get them out there. So what we're going to do is uh, share a couple of additional resources as well as some helpful guidance on how to actually put your comment in um, that, that Candace has drawn up for us. So um, I've been showing you throughout the, this program, this page here, this is a summary of the changes uh, in the rule. It's just a high-level summary, although there are some important links here at the bottom on how to comment uh, on the rule, uh, some links to the rule itself, and as well as this important website, regulations.gov. So if you go to this here, all right, this is going to take you to this page, regulations.gov, and I actually um, went ahead and put in the search bar, uh, Candace has shown, um, the term IPPS, and this, this pulled up this link, which is the Medicare program, hospital inpatient prospective payment systems, uh, 2020 rates and quality reporting requirements. This is, this is essentially the rule itself. Um, let me see if I can move this here. So uh, this is the, actually the, the what, what you want here. I'm circling on my screen and for, I know we have listeners that are just listening via podcast and cannot see the visual, but there, if you go to regulations.gov, you search for IPPS, uh, you will find the rule and then there is a blue button in the sort of the upper right of the screen that says comment now. Um, and that is essentially how you post your comment. You can actually see when the rule is posted below and the number of comments received on it. And I see there's quite a few, over 2,000 comments received, if, if, if I'm reading that correctly, the CMS. Uh, these are actually viewable on, this, on the screen. Um, you know, you're, you're, you can comment uh, via snail mail as well. There is um, instructions on where to send your comments should you do to choose to do so in writing. Obviously, it's easier to, to comment electronically um, let me go ahead and uh, pull something up here. I'm going to pause this for a moment. And let's see. Here we go. Candace, this is short. This is uh, your email that you sent on just how to um, navigate the, the comment process. So again, regulations.gov, you might want to drop an IPPS proposed. Uh, that will take you to this rule. It's, it's lengthy and there are a couple um, distractors here. You know, there's the uh, in, inpatient psych rule um, as well as the re inpatient rehab. What you want is the acute care hospitals, which she's highlighted here. Um, Press the comment now button, which she circled for us here nicely in, uh, in, in highlights. And Candace, maybe you could talk about this for a minute. You recommend um, cutting and pasting into, yes. in, in, right into the comment. I know we're not supposed to do that. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> cutting and pasting. So you just cut, you, you 
I, like you had had me do, I did it both in WordPerfect and, and the PDF file. So you want to go ahead and edit the document that you're doing, get it all nice and looking, and then copy and paste it into the window here. Now, if you can pull it up just a little bit, Brian, you're going to see this big window down here. So this big window has 5,000 characters in it, and it and it runs your sentence for like 2,000, like your each each sentence is like 2,000. So a lot of your letters going to be outside this window. So um, what I did was went in and put like hard stops to make it all fit in the window once I got it in the window. So once you cut and paste it in the window, make it look pretty in the window because mm -hmm. that's how you're going to view it at the end, okay? Instead of like 5,000 characters and three very long sentences. So then you just go ahead and once you cut and paste and get it pretty, you're going to put in your first and last name. You're going to say, I want to provide contact information. You're going to hit the um, continue button. It's going to drop down a box that's going to have where you put in your email address and information about you that will be part of your submission. Then you're, there's going to be a new continue button. You're going to hit it and you're going to go to this preview page. It's going to have that beautiful comment letter that you just put in for CMS to review and that will be published on their website. So congratulations, you're now a published author. And then the contact info is submitted to CMS once you click submit comment, okay? All right, perfect. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Now I'm gonna go ahead and um, actually go re return to our audience poll. Um, just a moment here. Um, you should be seeing this on your screen. Again, we asked our attendees to, to rate their level of concern with the 2020 IPPS rule. Um, so 48% say they are very concerned with these proposed changes, 28% somewhat concerned, only 4% indicate they are not concerned with the, the changes they've seen to date. 9% um, don't know, still formulating, and 12% have not read the rule. So hopefully we've reached some more, it sounds like we've reached some more people uh, on with today's show about what the rule actually contains, and they have some little more homework to do post-program. Uh, please check out those links I'll be sharing. But what do you guys think with the with the poll? Any, any, uh, any surprises here or, or not? I think the 12% that have not read the rule are sleeping a lot better than the 48% that are very concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about, how about you, Howard? Any any thoughts on this on the poll results? Uh, I'm actually heartened that at least you know 70% uh, of people are somewhat concerned, if not very concerned. You know, these are regulations that are not you know, easily found unless you know where to look for them. They're nothing that kind of just generally drifts across our computer screen or certainly nothing you're going to see on CNN or on Fox News or anything of that sort. So the fact that, you know, a fair percentage of us even know about them, I think, is an accomplishment. And I think one of the things we can do as a regulatory committee in the future is to make sure that people know what the process is, to know how to participate in the process earlier and to where to find these rules when they're initially proposed so we can start the process of commenting and influencing the rules a little bit sooner. Right. Okay. Well, thanks, Howard and, and Candace, for your great commentary on this really important issue. And I hope folks take the time to comment. Um, I should say that your comments are due 
by on Monday, June 24th at five by 5 p.m. Eastern. So you have a little more time. Uh, the regulatory committee is putting together a comment to CMS uh, as a committee. We've also have several that have commented individually. So we're, we're working and we hope you do too. The more comments CMS receives, the more pause they will have about some of these changes. And the likelihood is there, 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 there could be some um, redactions and, and maybe they will not decide to make go ahead and make some of these changes if there is enough concern voiced. So lend your voice to this cause and, uh, and, and, and make your comments heard. All right, I'm gonna wrap up here just briefly um, with uh, an Actus update. This is a regular feature bringing you the latest updates and what's going on inside of Actus. Um, I wanted to just briefly recognize the passing of a, um, a, a beloved Actus member and a former Actus advisory board member. I'm showing you a page from our uh, Actus Facebook page. You may have seen this. Um, Wendy Clessy, who is again, a former Actus advisory board member, a former winner of our 2009 recognition of CDI professional achievement award winner, uh, passed away on Saturday, June 1. Um, and, very, very un untimely, and, and um, we're all shocked and very saddened to see her uh, to see her go. Um, she was the she was the executive director of CDI Services at Enjoin. Um, anyone who's been in Actus has probably encountered her name. She wrote many excellent articles for us, spoke at our conferences. She penned a wonderful uh, white paper that we have um, on the Actus.org website cornerstone of CDI success, build a strong foundation. It's got a great message and uh, remains tr is true today as the day she wrote it. Um, I'll remember Wendy just uh, personally as well. She was um, described by many as being um, private, but certainly very super kind, super professional. Once you got to know her, she had a really, really great quiet sense of humor. Um, loved the CDI profession, had a lot to say about its its bright future. Um, and so I wanted to just recognize her passing um, and and um, my condolences for the whole Enjoin family and and her you know, obviously her, her 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 family as well. it's it's just a sad story. Um, there is a link to her obituary page if you'd like to look a little bit more and and they are taking comments in remembrance of Wendy on that page so again condolences to the family of Wendy Clessy and um, all the folks that enjoin we'll we'll miss you very much Wendy okay well with that we're going to go ahead and uh end today's show um and wrap things up here. We'll be back here again in one week. Again, usually we're in every other week program, but we're gonna be back here in just one week for our regular scheduled uh, Actus podcast. And our next show will be on the rise of AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning. But as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, you can send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. Take care, everyone. Happy commenting, and we'll see you back here again in one week. Thanks again, Candace Howard and Alan. Thanks, Brian. Bye now. Thank you much.